Uh, hi there, this is Dr. Robert Thatcher, the CEO of Applied Neuroscience. Hey, you're listening to the Neuro Noodle Network podcast. Thank you for joining Neuro Noodle's Neuropsychology and Neurofeedback podcast, featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Janssens and Dr. Skip Wren. They've been practicing for over 50 years, and they're going to share their knowledge with you. You can find Dr. Laura at Janssens.com, J-A-N-S-O-N-S.com. And Dr. Skip can be found at DrSkipRin.com. That's D-R-S-K-I-P-H-R-I-N.com. Oh, this is, this is a great uh, cast today, guys. We have a special guest, Dr. Robert Thatcher, President and CEO at Applied Neuroscience and author over 200 books on EEG and neurofeedback. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, smash that like button on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and so forth. And as always, before we get going, we have a quick article that uh, Dr. Skip found for us. Dr. Skip, tell us about the uh, article you found uh, on testosterone during pregnancy and uh, autism. Well, there was an interesting article, the studies out of the Queensland Brain Institute from down under, and they were doing some studies uh, with vitamin D deficiencies in fetuses, rat fetuses. Um, but there's been a lot of speculation about vitamin D deficiency in humans and how that might contribute to autism, particularly with the prevalence of autism in males. And so what this study indicated was that vitamin D deficiencies contributed to increased levels of testosterone as a result of an enzyme. Uh-oh, are we still good? Sorry about that. You're Everybody good. still good? Okay. My dog just pulled my whole, uh, my whole machine down. Um, we'll, we'll edit okay. that out in post. I figured, I figured. Um, and so the, 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 the deficiency of vitamin D leads to an increase in testosterone presence in male fetus brains, which has the effect of silencing an enzyme um, that again leads to increased more additionally increase in testosterone. And so all this study is really saying uh, is that they're getting close to a marker, a biomarker that might be right. All study, all good studies are coulds, shoulds, and woulds, but that might contribute to ASD. So the excitement, I guess, is around this idea of a possible biological marker that can be, you know, assessed somehow. And, and people are on to vitamin D deficiencies um, and have been for a while and it's development or lack of development in the central nervous system and in, in the fetal brain. And so anybody that's, you know, worked with folks with ASD or, or somewhere along the spectrum certainly has been able to witness um, irregularities in, in both, you know, functional and practical nervous system uh, anomalies. So there's, there's a connection and, you know, just kind of honing in on things, I guess, is the message here. Outstanding. Uh, Dr. Laura, anything to add, or are we going to go on to our guest? I'm curious about meeting with our guest here. Okay. You know, well, well, today's special guest is Dr. Robert Thatcher, again, President and CEO of Applied Neuroscience. He's the de developer of NeuroGuide software for QEEG and neurofeedback. He's the author of over 200 publications, including eight books. His most recent books are the Handbook of Quantitative Electroencephalography and EEG Biofeedback and Z-Score Neurofeedback. Dr. Thatcher, thank you for joining us today. Uh, can you begin telling us a little bit about 
yourself and anything that I missed from your bio. Hopefully I got the books right. You did, and thank you very much, Pete. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, well, I began as a, um, I got a PhD in psychology. Actually, I had a bachelor's degree in chemistry and uh, I was a math major in physics, but uh, uh, I decided to try to find out what's going on in this uh, three pounds of tissue that consumes 20 to 40% of our blood glucose floating inside our skulls. And that became a really exciting um, journey for me. And I received a PhD in excellent education from the University of Waterloo in Canada, uh, which is largely an engineering school, but it's a, uh, it was an open um, universe at that time, uh, letting students uh, challenge classes by taking the, you know, studying and taking the test, not having to go to the class, do what you want, but mostly do research. And so I ended up getting a, a my dissertation, I implanted a five or six electrodes and over 200 rats and looked at uh, avoidance conditioning, particularly, you know, in parts of the brain, like the amygdala, the thalamus, the frontal lobes. And I, I, I really enjoyed that. It was a lot of work. Uh, then I went to um, Albert Einstein College of Medicine and I taught uh, neuroanatomy to uh, uh, first year medical students in the neuro, at neuro lab and did intracellular impediments of uh, the thalamus and the cortex. So continued in the electrophysiology area. Then I became a faculty member at New York Medical College, worked with E. Roy John. And at that time we were pretty much a book potential people, not EEG. Uh, and we wrote a grant at one sentence on EEG and uh, 50 pages on evoked potentials. It was funded and dealt with uh, learning disabled children, several million dollars. And, and multiple sites. And after about uh, two years into the program, a uh, year and a half or so, we get a notification from the NIH that they want to cut our budget. And they're coming out to evaluate the progress of the project. And so uh, we scrambled, we stayed up overnight. There's a whole group of us for about three or four days, <laughs> getting all this data organized. And, but all we could really analyze at the time were, was a EEG. But the connectivity measures like coherence and time differences and amplitude between different parts of the scalp surface EEG gave us 95% discriminated accuracy, 95, 98% with independent cross-validations, multiple. And we showed that to the site visitors and they were very impressed and they continued our funding. Then we spent the next three years analyzing the book potentials, which are which lack connectivity. You don't have coherence, phase, or anything like that. And we could never get up above 85% accuracy and discriminant. And so it dawned on Roy John at this time, he says, wait a minute, five minutes, three minutes of EEG gives us 95% and we got all the tools to analyze it. Well, let's make it five minutes, <laughs> let's 10 minutes. We would care for 10 minutes, 15, 20 minutes. And um, it really didn't make any difference once you get about you know, two or three minutes the EEG is very stable, it's 0.95 test retest reliability, 0.98. Uh, and because it's really made up of a, a whole flow of energy between hubs and nodes in our brain, uh, which I didn't, nobody knew at that time. But so we continued to, and I then went to the University of Maryland, uh, worked in shock trauma. I, I continued doing EEG and evoked potentials uh, for uh, traumatically brain injured patients. Then I went to the National Institutes of Health in, in 1990, where the human brain mapping program developed and $2 billion was uh, put into the, this human brain mapping program. 
I was the project manager for the first 128 channel EEG system. I was also on the team to integrate and co-register PET scans, uh, spec scans, MRI with EEG and magnetic encephalography, which we did. But along the way in the first year, really, it, the, we found out that the brain was organized in hubs. And there's this uh, Corbinian uh, Broadman who wrote a book in, uh, in, I think, 1909 or so, uh, where there was no separation between neurology and psychiatry at that time. It was just, uh, it was really coming out of Darwinian period where you link structure to function and function to structure. And he saw that the brain had these 40 hubs, um, cytoarchitectural letters. You can actually look at the pack, nerve packing density in different parts, like the motor cortex, the frontal lobes, the occipital lobes, etc. The cytoarchitecture is distinctly different. That is the type of neurons, the way that they connect, all of that. And these, then these turned out to be what are called Broadman areas, and they're fairly large. And so he had all he spent a lot of time mapping all of that out. But and then everybody forgot about his work. Uh, there was a, a slight revision uh, in on mirror neurons in, in the 1930s. But anyway, suddenly the PET scans are showing Broadman areas over and over, hundreds of PET scan studies, uh, spec scan studies, Broadman areas. We're, then we're doing inverse solutions with EEG and they'll also show the same Broadman areas. And now we could co-register the PET scans with the EEG sources and cross-validate them. And now the, and that still is today, I mean, there, that's well-established scientific literature. The accuracy of EEG is about one centimeter for the sources, and they're really coming from little clusters of neurons. So out of the 100 billion neurons, it's really, at that time, is 88 uh, hubs. Uh, later on, we got the, you got the cerebellum, uh, red nucleus, stuff like this. So it's up to maybe 120, 110. But that's a really small number given 100 billion neurons, okay? But now that we know that there's these hubs and networks, we begin to, to look at uh, with PET scans, it was comprehensive, PET scans, MRI, EEG, um, different kinds of patients and also normal people with attention problems or uh, uh, psychiatric disorders, uh, but also with uh, normal people doing various tasks. And we found out that um, if, you, if you just do resting PET scans or resting spec, no task, you can predict the neurological problems without having to do a task. In fact, to get better prediction, because the brain, the resting state of the brain is actually more diagnostically useful than the active tasks. And that's, another, that's the same thing that Roy John and I were trapped in with 50 pages of a book potentials. <laughs> and so that was an interesting thing. And the reason for that is because the, we're all, the brain is continually trying to reduce uncertainty in the environment. It's all subconscious. We're not aware of it. Our consciousness is a really thin little part of our, our, our the organization. Uh, and when you do a task, you essentially turn off parts of your brain. Like if you um, balanced your checkbook, you know, there's a whole part of your brain for audition and such that it turns off because you get focused on this task. Whereas if you're not doing a task, the brain is continually moving around between the hubs, waiting for something to happen. <laughs> and then it will allocate the resources to mediate and function and you know, process information. So that was all discovered. Uh, then in 2001, I was working at the Bay Pines VA. I was project manager for four VA hospitals and three military bases doing EEG and MRIs, 
a neuropsychological test for these veterans, both active duty and uh, military. I mean, uh, uh, retired VA vets. And we published a bunch of papers and we could again, link everything. Uh, then uh, George Bush was elected and he terminated that program. And so I was gonna go, uh, I was submitting my resume, but then I thought we have 20,000 subjects in my database by this time. Why not create a company and uh, that would stand on the shoulders of this. But by that time, it was about six billion, four to six billion dollars at NIH, well-established science. And so that then I used the term. I coined the term "neural guide" to help guide um, the, the clinician clinician to linking symptoms to dysregulation inside these hubs. So we immediately began focusing on hubs and, and particularly connectivity, which is you know coherence measures the amount of cooperation between these hubs, and we, it's called uh, functional connectivity. Then there's effective connectivity, which measures the magnitude and direction of information flow between the hubs. And so we just began to develop that as a tool, uh, made it inexpensive and easy to use, and began marketing it. And now we have a uh, you know, total, people come and go, but roughly 3,000 people have um, bought our software in one form or another. Sometimes it's on two-channel Z-score, four-channel Z-score, or, or the full NeuroGuide, probably 1,500 were the full NeuroGuide. And in any case, uh, that empowered clinicians We continued to link patient symptoms dis to dysregulation in the hubs, whether it's the connectivity, and it could be the amygdala is not talking to the hippocampus, so the hippocampus is talking too much to the medial frontal lobes, uh, there's a number of uh, imbalances that can happen that give rise to a variety of different symptoms. So it's a tool to help the clinician, just one tool among other tools, as the clinician evaluates through neuropsychological tests or, or psych psychological interviews, et cetera, the patient and the clinical history, you can then open up the hood and look inside there and see the fan belt is off. You know, so neuropsychologists will see you get a squeaky car that's smelly and squeaky is jumping around. Uh, and making all the observation on the neuropsychological tests. And we had God, we had two days of neuropsych tests at the VA thing, but we would just look at the brain and see much more than any of these neuropsych tests would. And then we would correlate the neuropsych tests. And we would get 95%, but we'd have two days of testing. Three factors would represent 95% of the variance of the neuropsych tests. So they're extremely redundant and they don't open up the hood for this squeaky smelly car and see that the fan belt is off or the carburetor's got to be adjusted or, or one of the pistons is uh, the valves are not working <laughs> and then you link those symptoms to uh, what's going on inside the hood so that's the analogy and that's we've stayed focused on that uh there's of course people who poo poo eeg and, and neurofeedback that doesn't make any difference to us because we can validate it we stay with the literature and then about 2009, I decided to apply this Hubble telescope, in a way, to biofeedback. So why not do biofeedback on the hubs and the connections between the hubs rather than an electrode at CZ or C3, C4 and you do, that you do and it takes 100 sessions. Why not open up the hood, go down to look at the piston or the fan belt or whatever and reinforce towards greater stability and efficiency by using a normative database as a reference with healthy people carefully screened, FDA registered, et cetera, meeting high standards. That, we had to do that at the University of Maryland. 
And then, so we had oversight of all types as we develop our normative database. And it's, we really collected, we collected data from over 1,500 people from birth to 82 years of age, but only 750 or so met the stringent criteria that we had for being healthy, no history of neurological disorders, no, and, you know, performing at grade level, et cetera. And so that's, uh, and, and then we also have super performing people with 120 IQ and higher, uh, people from uh, the West Point. These are really top functioning uh, colonels and generals and all kinds of people like that. Plus businessmen who are at the University of Arizona and Arizona State uh, and who are really top notch people. So that became another part of the, uh, the, most of it is pretty well normal, like the whole world. But now you got a reference as you do neurofeedback, you reinforce towards the center and it's, your brain is oscillating around this stuff. You wanna minimize the chaos, increase the stability. So neurons will do their job because all of us, and this is going on the brain actually, and then we also discovered, this is a very important one that there's a shout out that's going on in the brain. It's, it's called a phase shift. In any moment of time, there's your brain, if there, it's always doing this, it says, who's available? Because at any moment of time, a group of neurons will be refractory or engaged in other things, or simply they metabolically, these neurons don't have enough energy to participate out of the 100 billion. So there's a shout out it's, it happens through the thalamus uh, and also other local hubs in the brain. So that, that shout out though identifies the resources available at that instant of time. The shout out is only 50 milliseconds. 20 milliseconds to roughly 80 milliseconds. And we found the higher, the greater the duration of the shout out, or that's when it's a phase shift, the higher the IQ. And we could see in autistic kids, it's only 10 milliseconds, 20 milliseconds. They're not, they're, they're not recruiting many neurons. Anyway, so once the neurons are identified and recruited, then they become phase locked for about 200 milliseconds, 250. But they can't be phase locked too long because then you don't have resource for the next shout out. So this optimal relationship between efficient recruitment of available healthy neurons, lock them in for a, a, enough time, a brief time, 200 milliseconds, 250, to do their job and mediate and you know, determine what the colors are and, and what you're hearing and where you're gonna move and what's your goals. And all of that is being organized by this series of these frames. And then uh, another shout out happens and it just continually going on like this. So it's both chaos and stability. And we wrote a paper on uh, self-organized criticality. It's a nonlinear dynamical uh, paper. I like to play around with mathematics. So, so that's in there. And, uh, but that's basically what's going on all the time. And so the efficient brain basically is what you wanna move towards a healthy brain. So you got plenty of resource. You don't get, the brain doesn't get stuck in loops that it, uh, it doesn't mediate well. And so basically that's what we, we're still doing. We're now you know, doing it even better because we can image the cerebellum now and uh, red nucleus. The, uh, the, and the other is the, we're gonna have it in the next release is the nucleus accumbens and the uh, habenula, uh, which is very important for addiction and for attention because uh, nucleus accumbens is generating dopamine, right? So you get rewarded for uh, a successful movement. Uh, so if you, for, for example, you think your toaster is in the cupboard to the left, uh, you're predicting a future reward because you want to get that toaster. 
so your nucleus accumbens is going to start discharging a bit. You open up the cupboard. If it's there, then you get a burst of dopamine. So you'll be for you did the right thing. However, if it's not there, okay, your abenula suppresses the dopamine. So you go, oh, yeah, it's in the cupboard to the right. <laughs> you go to the right because now you've learned. If the abenula wasn't suppressing dopamine, you keep opening up the wrong cupboard. <laughs> so, so these two dynamics are going on. So we're going to include that in uh, NeuroGuide in our next release. Well, doctor, speaking of your releases. How far away is that? <laughs> a couple of weeks. <laughs> ne ne oh, never ahead. ask a software guy that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. We, it's actually, yeah, we're, uh, I'd say two, could be three weeks, but uh, we, okay. we've yeah, got so many things. You what? Well, I'm looking forward to that. No, it's great. Okay. Well, yeah, it's, it's going to be fun to see it. I would love for people to use it and, uh, we also are going to, we're developing a, a new statistics program we call Navistat. It's part of the Neural Navigator. Uh, that will allow you to look at groups of kids and determine is the habenula or the nucleus accumbens changing with your treatment. So you really, you can actually be able to look at uh, both reduced symptomology because we also yeah, lots of application. A, a program. Yeah, that'll be that'll be in actually for it will have it in the neurofeedback protocol, so you can you can target those uh, hubs, and then um, we also with Navistat you can do science with it if you want to publish because it gives you t tests analysis of variance. That's only for those who want to to do that, uh, but uh, if nothing else, you can look at charts of progress of the brain. Now, of course, you want to see the symptom, the severity of the symptoms, really you want them to go down, no matter what the brain does. So we have a product called Neuralink. It's on a smartphone. And the patient can fill it out and do self-report. And you've got your own as a neuropsychologist. Severity of symptoms is something you pay attention to. Uh, so, um, and this helps link, uh, particularly we're doing this because of the COVID virus because suicide is increasing in the military and depression is really a serious mental health disorder and attention problems going forward. And so um, if we have it free, it's free on a, a smartphone, we're going to try to push this through the Society for Human Brain Mapping and uh, Therapeutics um, to be able to help people now in this crisis time and then link them to these people, to people like yourselves, to clinicians. You would, we make money by you subscribing. I think it's $10 a month or 25 a month, something. That way you get linked to your uh, to people who have problems. And, and, um, and then uh, whatever way you want to help them, you can actually remotely, Richard Abbey, for example, has, I think, 30 units, they're all remote. So he, he sends an amplifier to the person, goes on Zoom, go to meeting, helps them get the electrodes on right, so he gets good data coming in. All he needs is five minutes of EEG. And then he gets that data, he analyzes it, Neurogat is very fast, and he starts helping the patient within a 20 minute, uh, 30 minute period with neurofeedback or whatever method you, you know you got at your disposal. Well, we have clinicians listening to this podcast. We have uh, moms and dads listening to this podcast. For the moms and dads out there, that have sent their kids in or have come in their, their, their selves to get a QEG, the, the quote unquote heat map that we provide, the database we compare the brains to, I mean, th this is the doctor that has the database. 
right? <laughs> to 20,000, you know, by age. So this is, uh, this is qu quite an awesome treat. So uh, Dr. Thatcher, thank you for putting that all together. Dr. Skip, Dr. Laura, do you have any questions from Melissa you'd like to address with Dr. Thatcher? Well, you know what, I, I'll introduce myself a little bit too. Um, so I, I smiled when you were talking about your early history. Uh, you know, I, I, when I went to school, my undergraduate uh, work was in uh, engineering and physics and uh, I'm kind of a technology geek who became a psychologist and then a neuropsychologist. And um, so we developed this company. I don't know uh, exactly how, how Pete introduced this all for you, but um, uh, Pete's the MBA and I'm a neuropsychologist, Skip, and he'll, he'll probably introduce himself. He's also a neuropsychologist. And, and what we're trying to do, like when you're talking about the science in the hubs and the nucleus accumbens, uh, I was drooling because I'm like, oh, this is all, you know, my language and my, uh, you know, I'm into the geography of the brain and these things. But, um, you know, all fascinating stuff, to, you know, for me as a clinician and, and an engineer, I guess. Um, but what we're trying to do or and what we're trying to do is uh, make this kind of information accessible to, you know, the average person, the mom and dad. Um, because what fascinates me, and you know, we've done a lot of these interviews with people, what fascinates me or, or, or stumps me, I guess, is you know, we have this fabulous technology, we have this tool that has so many applications and, and things like that. Um, but you know, I, I'm in the Chicago area and very few people know what this is. Very few people, I am saying relatively speaking, I guess, but you know, few people, um, are utilizing, you know, such a great tool. And I just always scratch my head, like, why, you know, why isn't it out there more? Why isn't it uh, utilized and, and uh, recommended more? And, you know, kind of what's, what's the, what's the problem here? You know, what's the gap between, you know, having this available and being, you know, used by the, uh, you know, general public? What do you think? Well, it's a long story, but uh, number one, the, it, the brain is a mystery to even neurologists. So the history, it turns out the, the brain is a little bit like a bastard child. <laughs> In a way, you, got, you got psychiatry and you got neurology. And neurology, they've decided mostly looking at uh, neuropathies and peripheral neuropathies and a little bit with Parkinson's, but they don't even, the American Academy of Neurology said, don't use EEG, even for traumatic brain injury. So the official position paper of American Academy of Neurology is eyeball examination of the squiggles. Don't use QEG. And they can actually bring up ethics complaints in the past with, uh, we've had, neuro we have many neurologists as customers, not many, maybe a hundred or so, or 60 or 70. And uh, one of them uh, was being threatened with a, a, a ethics complaint because he, he was using QEG. Now he was able to overcome that because they dismissed it. In fact, he got a standing ovation at the American Academy of Neurology program where he had like 100, 200 epilepsy patients where he did quantitative EEG and then neurofeedback and helped him quite a bit. So, but that that's just happens to be uh, uh, that organization uh, is a little desperate for money, I guess. That's neurology. Uh, neuros neurosurgeons, they, they have no problem adopting 
quantitative EEG. I found that at University of Maryland. They love it because uh, they get into the brain. They actually help people in the brain. Then there's psychiatry where, where you have uh, people doing a Freudian evaluation or even neuropsych, et cetera, looking at the history, but the brain is forgotten about. They don't measure the EEG. So uh, it weighs three pounds, it's consuming 20 to 40% of our glucose, as I said, but it's in this thick skull. But we have the technology today to try to resurrect and to bring light to uh, this organ and link it to the patient symptoms. The other problem is that people will look at just one, they, won't, they don't know that the brain is made up of hubs and then they'll measure these squiggles at, at CZ and that's a very little use, it turns out. Uh, you really have to look at the hubs and the connections between the hubs because that's how the brain actually is talking and uh, processing information. So uh, you need a three-dimensional imaging and that's why we pushed uh, the neuro navigator so much. Uh, which gives you the depth. It, essentially what Ernesto did is uh, the MEG uh, is, has an advantage in its magnetism over electricity in that all the heterogeneous tissue spaces in the brain are invisible to magnetism. Uh, the, skull, you know, the skull is E2 a bit invisible. Whereas with uh, EEG, these different tissue spaces uh, distort the source localization, that is the, for the deep sources. So the thing that the ventricles, the white matter, the gray matter, all those things are, affects the conductivity of electricity. So, but using the uh, inverse solution, there's a, it's called the lead field. And I have a bunch of videos on this uh, on my forum is, um, you can mathematically make the lead field equal to the magnetic lead field. It's completely homogeneous now inside the volume, inside your skull. So you don't see gray matter, white matter. It's not interfering with the conductivity. It's all adjusted. And that allows you to see the cerebellum uh, and the red nucleus and the circumference and all of that. Now that's it. So it's like a Hubble telescope in a way. And they were able to put new lenses in there to see a little deeper into the... Uh, the distant universe that we couldn't before. Now, once you see those new galaxies, that enlightens us. And it's very important, these galaxies are connected to the nearby galaxies as well. So we need to see the networks. So it's exciting to be able to do that. But so that is one thing. Now, now the bigger issue is what about the future? How can we um, educate and advance all of this? Now, one thing, which really, I think education is the key. and People like yourselves are crucial in this. I mean, you are experts, you're enthusiastic, your podcast is fantastic. Just keep it up, okay? <laughs> Try to get bigger, <laughs> do that, and have more people do that as well. Because the universe is very large, that is, there's a big need out there. And so competition should do, I wouldn't worry about competition uh, it, it, because there's such a vast boundary of possibilities. So that's silly and just put your energy into growing and educating. Now, one thing that I'm involved with is I'm on the board of the Society for Brain Mapping and Therapeutics. It has about two or 3,000 members. It's been around for about 18 years. It's run mostly by neurosurgeons and uh, the, the guy that runs it, uh, uh, Bebek, Dr. Babak Kateb, K-E-T-E-B, uh, is a neurosurgeon and engineer. So there's a lot of people that think that way there. 
And they, <clears throat> Babak wants to do mass screening and he's well connected to uh, Congress. He was a part of uh, uh, Obama's uh, neuroscience health thing, uh, system. Uh, Obama put another 2 billion into the human brain mapping program and his, uh, well, he was president. Now, uh, Biden and Harris are reaching out uh, to get guidance for neuroscience, especially in this crisis time with the COVID-19 virus. And, and plus mental health disorders that predated the COVID-19. Now you, you got all of that and then you add the COVID-19, it's really a challenge for us to step up. And so the Vox says, well, let's do mass screening. Let's go to Congress and tell them we're gonna do mass screening um, and of EEG. And so, and it, the, so that's, so I wrote a position paper Okay, uh, and it's not. It's in the final phases of debate. In fact, tonight at eight o'clock, I'm gonna we're gonna debate it, discuss it more. Um, and he's he's been invited by the Biden Harris team transition team to present this position paper. And the core of it is mass screening. Okay. So once you and I have a picture of the center as the brain, and then you can have uh, TMS, neurofeedback, uh, medications, uh, TDCS. There's a lot of tools out there, but you need to monitor the brain networks itself and the symptoms so that you can move the patient towards greater uh, health and the better stability and efficiency in the brain networks. And you can do that remotely. You don't have to have the patients come into your office, but they can do both, come in your office. But with the remote, uh, with given the virus, uh, is something that we're pushing to develop. It's doable. Amplifiers, um, there's a Chinese amplifier for $800, but we we're worried about the, uh, they have viruses embedded in the damn, damn thing. So we, we, we can't take the risk, even though, but other people can eventually uh, get inexpensive amplifiers like uh, uh, Cognionics is $3,000. It's an excellent amplifier, wireless. So, uh, so the idea, I mean, Richard invested, Richard Abbey is a neuropsychologist in a small set of amplifiers and he moves them around to these different people, mails them out. And people just use them and they'll send them out and that's one way to do it. Or he'll have patients invest $3,000 in the amplifier. So there's a number of ways to do this. Uh, it's feasible. And so that's what this paper is about, but is to try to get funding and awareness by the Biden-Harris administration. Uh, I just, two days ago, put in a cost-benefit ratio part of it. It's important to see, because the, 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 they're estimating around $3 trillion in economic loss because of mental health problems. And so a little bit of funding for something like this could cut into that, could reduce it by 10% or 20% or whatever. Uh, and save the government plenty of money. They just have to be willing to invest on mass screening <laughs> for people who need it and getting them connected to people like you. So those Skip, are, uh, are your patients buying amplifiers? No, <laughs> and just to real quick with Dr. Thatcher. So I'm up in Alaska with my practice and predominantly doing neuropsych evals with the really small neurofeedback practice on folks that kind of fit the fit the script uh, for you know folks that are interested and, and willing and, and able to commit and all that. We do a lot of cues. And so I, I've been incorporating the cues into my neuropsych evals and it's done a couple of things. One, it adds color 
So everybody always liked pictures, but it's allowed us to cut out uh, testing when it's not necessary. And we were just talking about this last week on the podcast, but there's certain people that are maybe just more appropriate for it or just fits better. And, and we had a guy recently um, that had a TBI. Part of the symptomology was easily frustrated, um, difficulty regulating emotional responses and all that code for you push him through three, four hours testing and he's getting really fatigued and yelling and screaming and, and it's just not a good thing for him, right? No, no need to torture him. I can cut out two hours of testing, do a cue that takes a half an hour all told and all he's doing is sitting there and not to shoot my uh, you know field in the leg or whatever, but I'm getting better information than if I you know sat him down. I already know that when he's overwhelmed, he becomes flustered and has difficulty regulating his emotions. He told me that anyway, because that's why he's coming to see me. So I, with your analogy of the car, I already know the car smells. I already know it's not running well. I'd like to find out what's contributing to the noises I'm hearing and why it's, you know, hitching down the road. And so does he. So all that to say, in the hood. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so no, Laura, nobody's buying uh, amplifiers. Uh, and in Alaska, some folks know about neurofeedback, not many, uh, which I don't think is really uncommon, to be honest, but uh, they're certainly amenable to it. What I'm excited about, and probably because of COVID, but also Alaska's remote it just by nature, is the idea of having some of this machinery available for folks to rent, lease, whatever. And then because everybody knows how to use Zoom and all this, um, you can kind of walk them through the steps. I think just to answer Part of the question moving forward and allowing neurofeedback to be more accessible, I think that's something that would help that happen, meaning the convenience, right? That's, that's kind of mm -hmm. who we are as a society. And COVID has certainly contributed to folks operating from their living rooms on their computer. Um, so anyway, just as a comment, I think that might facilitate this being more accessible to people. Um, but mostly I, I think having the, the availability to do that both in office and remotely is going to help overall. So that's quick, my quick question. And it's scalable. Yeah. You can scale it up. That's the other thing. Uh, and that's a very important concept. Docs, let me ask the three of you this. Currently clinicians are using the, the DSM or the diagnostic statistical manual of mental disorders to, to make their diagnoses. Why, why isn't the EEG, QEEG being used to uh, replace that or will it replace that? Isn't objective data better than subjective data? Moms and dads want to know. I'll sit back and wait for my answer. DSM stands for dinosaur. Well, it's useful. I mean, uh, there's people that want to get rid of it completely. At, at, at NIH, the director, the, I guess he came in in year 2000 or 2005. He, uh, he was really he, he was really pushing this idea of opening up the hood and just looking at the motor, uh, and um, not getting into these small subcategories. Because what happens, people get trapped into trying to pigeonhole the symptoms. So it makes him feel good as a psychologist to say, oh, he has this disorder or he has this disorder. And now he, he feels good. And the patient walks away and says, oh, great. You know, I've got uh, avoidance behavior. I've got paranoia. Great. It doesn't help him. You still have to open up the hood because that's why he has 
these symptoms. So on the one hand, it's important to be able to understand and also these various dimensions of DSM. I think it's good uh, myself. I've used it a lot over my years. Uh, but opening the hood up is something you need to add to it. And, uh, and it doesn't have to be a battle between the two. It's just that one is missing. People are not opening the hood. Whatever diagnostic instrument you use, you need to uh, look at the organ that's responsible for the, um, the, the anxiety disorder or the attention problem or the suicidal ideation or whatever it is. You need to look at that. Look at that amygdala. Uh, military, for example, uh, uh, Fort Campbell in 2003, Joel Lubar and I became, uh, were, um, I'm sorry, 2013, we were um, uh, consultants and we would fly to uh, Kentucky to Fort Campbell. There was a big facility to do rehabilitation on soldiers from Afghanistan. These are young guys. They have PTSD and mild, mild uh, MTBI, traumatic brain injury. Anyway, so we uh, introduced, they started doing four channel neurofeedback and it was helping. They did like two or three years. And then we started doing Loretta neurofeedback and they got a considerable improvement in the uh, functioning of these young uh, soldiers. They would target the amygdala, bilateral amygdala, the bilateral insula and the bilateral cingulate gyrus and the medial frontal lobes. There's a subset of these that we'd see were related to dysregulation in the, um, uh, due to uh, PTSD. Now they added to it now the default network. Now it turns out the default network is a very important part of the PTSD uh, situation as well. So you can do all of those at the same time and they do 10 sessions in their feedback. They do a complete, open up the hood, they look inside the brain and they get good, uh, you know, about over 90% success in getting these kids they all want to go back to Afghanistan you know, it's, 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 that's who they are anyway so there's that then uh, we have 22 systems with the special ops and that's mostly for peak performers but these these guys have 100 or women 120 IQ and higher uh, coordinated by uh, McDill Air Force Base and so that is spread out a bit and that they focus though on peak performance but these people also have PTSD. They have drug addiction problems. They have divorces. They have a variety of issues too. And so eventually they're going to be focusing on that, but pretty much they want to, they want to make them even better than they already are. So, uh, but there's going to be more of that in the future because the military, as I mentioned, the suicide uh, problem is pretty serious. And the, these soldiers don't tell you they're going to commit suicide. They just kind of do it. And so we need ways to get them connected and ways to help them. And as this virus increases the demand for mental health uh, help is uh, going to rise. And so having um, efficient, inexpensive and effective methods, uh, along with the other competing in useless ones is okay, but at least you, somebody's got to have the ones that are helpful to uh, move forward and, uh, and that's uh, what we have to emphasize. So we beat up the DSM. How about uh, <laughs> let's beat it? How about the uh, the concussion protocols, the tests, the testing? Now I know we're in COVID, but we get a lot of parents that have athletes as kids, and you know they come in and you know they want to get a baseline before the season starts. 
Why, why isn't the NFL, MLB, you know, why don't they take advantage of this doc? Or do you think they will in in the future? Or or what are your thoughts about getting a baseline before the season starts? (laughs) Well, yeah, we did that actually when when I worked at the VA uh, in high school, got a lot. um, Now with the military's political, it's a political issue. It's the way I see it is that the players they're in the player association is very powerful. Uh, and so number one, the players don't want uh, anybody to say their brain's not working right. Cause they could, this is their livelihood. They could lose their career Two, It's got to go to a clinician, to a, an authority. And that authority is always a neurologist. <laughs> Neurologists are opposed to quantitative EEG. <laughs> and then all the owners have to agree on this. And so in order to, to do that, it's really not easy. I mean, it comes down to that. There's a few sprinklings of it, like when a uh, one of the players has a concussion. Uh, they were going to put a little system at the sidelines in a tent to measure his EEG. Now that was being proposed because it's an acute period. It's not a screening. It's just to get information about how severe this TBI is, so they can get the player back on the field. So if he's got a normal EEG, okay, and his symptoms are gone down, he'll, he'll get back on the field. So that is the idea there when they, they but that's, you know, just the way it is. And recognizes TBI is it, uh, for the NFL, that's a small, very small issue. Uh, they got a lot of money, but it's a small number of people compared to the 1.5 TBIs per year, at least somewhere around there, at least in 2014, it's like that. Um, the, of mild to severe TBI. So the idea is to be able to, uh, particularly usually what happens is the, the brain bangs around uh, and, and there's shear forces in it, uh, the frontal and the temporal lobes, uh, which are close to the bones, uh, bang around and get contused. So you'll, you can see that in the EEG. And then the uh, other is the, uh, uh, the shear forces diffuse, uh, diffuse uh, axonal injury. And you see that in phase. You'll see the time delay between the parietal lobes and the frontal lobes goes down. Uh, so, and, but, you know, the brain also heals itself. It's, uh, it, especially with the mild, but you'll be able to see that. Now, the moderate to severe are much more difficult to treat. Uh, that's what we found in, at the VA, uh, generally. And, but luckily, that, that's not the majority. The majority, about 70% are mild traumatic brain injuries. The other question I had is, what about the schools and the testing that they have now? Somebody has difficulty reading. Do you think this will ever be mainstream where you'll have a technician, an amplifier, you know, in the schools? Uh, obviously, it's politics, I'm guessing you're going to say. Uh, but, you know, what... I would think the parents would get pretty fired up about the, the, what I've seen in the business side of things. They want to see data that what is the problem? Is it, are they getting better? Yes or no. If my child has a reading disorder, then why, why is that? Where is that? And what can we do about it? Any of three docs can, can pitch in on that one. What are the schools going to do about it? Well, just real quick. I don't know what the schools are going to do with what the future holds, but I mean, if you're just listening today, the, you, you can hopefully understand that QEEGs and EEGs in general um, can give us that information. And so everything that people are asking for, for definitive 
um, explanation on what the heck's going on. Why can't my kid read? Um, I think Laura and I, as neuropsychologists, try to explain that. But if we could get a, a cue, uh, and, and then now we can show you. And it's not what we learned 20 years ago. It's what just got pulled off your kid's scalp 20 minutes ago. And so th that's my response to your question. It's like, hey, the answer is there. It's, it, I think it's back to what we've been talking about, you know, in and out today is how, how do we get more folks on board, right? And, and well, if, if, if you have to start the school year and get a physical, why, why couldn't this be the version of the mental physical? Here's the picture, you know, of the brain. Why is it? It just seems like common sense. And it's just not. A, that's the problem. It's common sense. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, Pete, go ahead, I got some ideas on that, too. The um, uh, it really it's got to be it's I think it's got to go through the parents and not the administration of the schools. That, that's that drives everything. Now, what does that mean? As a businessman, that means marketing. So I'm a businessman. Really, I'm a scientist who became a businessman, but I'm not a, a, a really good businessman. I do my best. But, uh, but I tell you that a really good businessman knows how to market. And if you, if you can find ways to get investment, do massive marketing with a focused, you know, really nice looking web page, really good looking marketing uh, with facilities where you can drive parents too so you get customers you got ways to then uh, the marketing is, is missing so that's why i'm saying a massive marketing massive investment um in marketing give it a boost see what happens uh, hopefully it will pay for the marketing <laughs> expense <laughs> at least break even but there's a good chance if the marketing is done right it will pay for the expense of the marketing and create a profit for uh, various companies Dr. Dr. Thatcher, you, you've already talked about how the military was marketed to and they bought in and they're seeing results. And so the model works. It's just a matter of getting other populations to buy into it through marketing, right? They got the government and the military's in. Right. They know there's results. And, 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 and the National Library of Medicine, the database. There's yeah. 150,000 peer-reviewed journal articles in quantitative EEG. And not to- and again, Most of them are clinical. Not, not to critique anybody's intentions or wishes, but we could probably say that, you know, the military is maybe not interested in actually how these folks are doing and, and care about them as humans. And that might be revealing a little of my political colors, but you know what I'm saying? It's, it's all I'm trying <laughs> to get at is they're doing it because it works. And I don't knock that. Um, it's, it's they're helping their employees perform as best they can. And that's certainly understandable. I think, you know, the folks, us, uh, psychologists, you might have a different uh, motivation, but it's still the same outcome, right? We want to help folks just perform better. Yeah. They're just no, not the having same. to be, you know, uh, colonels in our armies. They're, they're people in our communities and, and parents of kids that, you know, can't be there for them or kids that can't read well, right? It's, it's the same objective. Yeah. Um, so, all right. Yeah, right now there is uh, the Intrepid program. There's, there is... I've been contacted by a colonel um, who's been assigned to be ahead of what it's, it's called the Intrepid Program. Uh, and it, he's, he's busy trying to um, get funding for, to include QEG, uh, to expand what's going on at Fort Campbell and uh, uh, McDill Air Force Base uh, and with multiple centers to help veterans so there is there is a there it, you know at the fairly high up in the military there are individuals who are trying to do this 
it's going to take time. But I think right now is an important uh, moment in history because this virus is unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's decimated our society. And mental health problems are can be addressed. It's really marketing. you got to be able to expose, make sure people are aware of the cost-benefit ratio here because the cost is huge if we don't help people. Uh, and the cost of doing treatment, $3,000, is minimal compared to losing your job or going to jail or committing suicide. The whole family's uh, or, or dying. People are dying and it's uh, destroying their the fabric of their lives. And it'll take them a long time to recover. And so to the extent that there can be help, it doesn't just, it isn't just QEG, of course, but uh, that's a, that's at least we can open up the hood and look inside and see what the fan belt and the pistons are doing uh, as part of the um, uh, method to move them in direction of better mental health. Well, and now we're talking, that, of, now we're talking about uh, insurance. Um, yeah. You know, reimbursement and, I don't know if it's a regional, you know, I'm in Illinois, you know, near Chicago, suburb of Chicago. And I, I probably, every new patient I meet, I, their first question to me is, do you take my insurance? And, and, you know, I'm always kind of working with them to kind of, you know, what does that question mean? I think it's just such an automatic question that, you know, that's, that's how they relate to the, to the health field is, you know, is this going to be paid? How much is this going to be out of pocket? What's the burden to me financially? And, and, and for, you know, it's a big question, but, you know, rather than come out of the box saying, you know, what's, you know, how is this investment going to make my life better? It's, it's more kind of, um, you know, they're thinking in terms of, you know, preventing the, the cost, you know, that that's one thing. And then, you know, again, my same Kind of question from earlier is I, I spend you know I answer that question you know that's a frustrating question to answer every day as is the question you know trying to answer you know what is a QEG what is neurofeedback what does that mean what's the efficacy and so everyone seems to have you know those questions when yes certainly the primary question you know should be you know how do I feel better and and you know what what can I do for this you know, versus, you know, do you take my insurance? So, you know, that, that brings up all sorts of frustrations. Yeah, no, I completely understand. That's one of the problems. The insurance companies uh, are, uh, you know, hesitant to um, to reimburse. It's a lot of, that. there are codes available. So I would recommend to uh, use those codes. And in our, in our webpage, um, uh, there's a, the, I forgot the name of the act. There's an, in 2009 under the Obama period. Parody, uh, there's, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. What's the name again? Anyway, so Parody. I have that on my website. Yeah, yeah. parity uh, law. So if you fill out those forms, that does force the insurance companies. It really does. So uh, they are by law required when you challenge, why aren't you going to reimburse for this? And the patient can do it too. So you can give the patient the form. It's a letter, a form letter. You can download it from our website and craft it whatever way you want because it's a Word document. And that puts pressure on the insurance companies. It makes your patients feel better. At least they're taking action with the possibility to get, uh, and you help them by giving them the letter <laughs> that they sign, <laughs> that they mail, and you, you, you mail your own. And now it takes some time. And then when they deny it, 
you have the right, they are required to justify that, to say, well, you, to say, okay, I, I reimburse for this and this and this and this, but I'm not reimbursing for what you want, then that's not parity. So the Parity Act requires them to, um, to meet that. And there's a lot of cases where the insurance company just goes ahead and uh, pays rather than uh, hassle with it. Now, one of the problems is that the CPT code doesn't pay a lot of money. It's, that's limited. And to give you a history, uh, in 2017 or 16, uh, I went to, um, I, I worked with Joel Lubar and uh, Debbie Simpkin and the, the president of ISNR at that time to uh, create new CPT codes for um, Loretta Biofeedback because it's 19 channels. The, the, the old CPT codes are just for two channels. So there's a lot more education. It's more expensive. Those are, that's a justification. And there was clear science in support of it. It took us a year and a half of hard work putting this proposal together to give it to the uh, an AMA, a CPT code uh, committee that was meeting uh, in Austin, Texas. So after the ISNR meeting, I went to the, for the presentation to the CPT code committee. And uh, there, we had a, a um, neurologist who presented it for us, sat in front of the committee. I was just behind watching it. He, he presents this, all the arguments with slides and the CPT codes. And, and they're all looking, it's a written document with all the codes uh, for justifying it. And there's a, there's a discussion. And, and so they said, okay, I'll, let's vote. Who's in favor of the CPT codes for this new development in neural imaging neurofeedback, they all voted unanimously for the CPT codes. That voting is done. Now the chairman is moving on to the next bit of business and suddenly hears somebody screaming in the back of the room. He goes, what is that? It's behind him. And it's the president, the new president of ISNR. She's, she's only been there for two months and she's opposed to uh, QEG and she's opposed to Loretta. She says, nobody uses this. I'm the president of ISNR. People only use two channels. Uh, and, so, and, and he goes, what? He goes, I thought you guys were all together on this. But this is an organization that is opposed to what you guys have proposed. But I can't, we can't go forward. He says, the committee must rescind their vote. So they did, they rescinded their vote. And that's where we stand today, here 2020. We had that opportunity. We got right up to the edge of the, of the mountain looking down in the valley and then suddenly behind us this, this thing that tumbled us backwards so uh, that's real life but we got to keep trying uh, they'll be revisiting of this uh, i uh, like i said the parity law is good and then uh, if we can get the biden harris transition team to put money into mental health and specifically quantitative eeg and neurofeedback is one of those things uh, then potentially, uh, you know, that could help. So it's a, a variety of things, but we just got to be persistent. Well, docs, we're we're at time. Any last questions, Dr. Laura, Dr. Wren? No, I, I just uh, want to just comment. I guess is it's nice to have uh, Dr. Thatcher so accessible. You know, to uh, you know. huge. I, I have called you um, for a couple different things over over the years, and uh, and you are accessible. 
well, I can ask to talk to you and, and you're there. And then to, you know, show up on a, a podcast like this, uh, very appreciative. And, um, you know, my education's only begun, you know, that's how I feel about, uh, you know, this field. Um, so uh, again, just want to thank you for your contributions to, uh, uh, to you know the, the the patients I see in in the clinical world and, and, and toward the future. So thank you. Well, thank you. I, if I could echo that too, I should, well certainly thank you for being with us today. It's been fantastic to to meet you um, Zoom style, but to you know hear you kind of describe some of the things that we're familiar with and we got you here. It's kind of exciting and fun <laughs> to hey the guys here we can ask them whatever we want. So thank you really for doing that. And also, I, I uh, appreciate the, um, and I'll say not so subtle encouragement to kind of keep going. Like we're, this is frustrating at times, and I know you've experienced it by just some of the stories you've told. But it is um, challenging sometimes to to be kind of aware of something that can be so beneficial and helpful, and it's tough to get the word out. So thanks for the encouragement. And one more thing, and this is for myself, um, I, I am aware that the VA cares about their patients. And that they do neurofeedback with them because they want them to get better. So I don't, I don't think all the military. That is really true. The military yeah. does too. Now, yeah. uh, but I want to thank you all too, and uh, especially uh, Laura and Skip and Pete. You can call me anytime. Uh, contact me. I don't always leave a message if I don't pick up my phone. Oh. Uh, but I'm accessible. Email, uh, text, you name it. But it's very important for us to have yeah. venues of communication. Because it, it's the synergy is clearly here uh, for all four of us. Yeah. yeah so, well, Pete, uh, Pete, just one quick last thing. Yeah. I, I think I'm being a little grandiose, or maybe not. I don't know. That, that's who I am. But I, I think neuro noodle, like what we're trying, what having, like you said, the marketing. That that's what I think makes our little group here, uh, you know, have some promise. Is that you know, with Pete at the at the leadership here with the MBA background and the marketing. I, I think he's got it and you were right on. And a lot of people we talk to, you know, they, they talk about, you know, it, it's really a financial issue as far as, um, you know, getting some leverage with, with pushing this out there to the masses. Um, you know, we don't have the benefit of, uh, you know, triple blind studies being, you know, supported by drug companies, et cetera. So, um, I think we we're we're on a good path, and I, I do also appreciate the um, the uh, support and the um, you know uh, positive um, you know uh, kind of feeling that you gave us as far as yeah there, there's still hope we can we can still kind of pull this really? off and, and do something with it. Well, there's a lot of happy moms and a lot of happy moms and dads out there. Uh, the marketing we're getting is referrals, and that's the best kind of marketing because there's 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 kids, parents, moms, dads who are who are getting results, and that's what matters. We just have to that's get fantastic. Get, get some more out there, Doc. Thanks that's again wonderful. to Doctor. Thanks again to Doctor Robert to Robert Doctor Robert Thatcher, President and CEO and Applied Neuroscience Incorporated. Again, he's the developer of NeuroGuide software for QEEG and neurofeedback and is the author of over 200 publications, including eight books. His most recent books are The Handbook of Quantitative Electroencephalography and EEG Biofeedback and Z-Score Neurofeedback. Thanks, Doc. 
Dr. Laura can be found at jansons.com, J-A-N-S-O-N-S.com. And Dr. Skip can be found at drskiprin.com, D-R-S-K-I-P-H-R-I-N.com. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We wish everyone a happy holiday next week. And, and next week, yes, we will have a podcast. And we will have a dad come on board who has had a child go through neurofeedback and has a list of questions that he would like to ask the doctors. So it'll be another great show. Guys, thank you so much over and out. Thank you. Uh, special thanks to uh, Lori Counts, Counts out there. She gave us uh, the music that we use in our intro and outro. Great music. And speaking of the music, here you go. Boom. Boom.